in our Gospel of John series. We're going through chapter 14 now, so we've made it quite far. We're working our way through it. We'll get almost to the end of chapter 14 today, and we'll finish it next week. So if you have your Bible and you want to turn to there, feel free to. Let's go ahead and pray together. Father, we thank you for your grace that's poured out upon us through Jesus Christ. Help us to remember your grace is that which pardons us from our sin through his death and resurrection, but it's also as we share in his death and resurrection that you graciously continue to give us what we need to live in this life. You don't just give us forgiveness, but you give us all that we need for life, to live it in a way that honors you. So help us this morning as we look at your word and as we hear the words of Jesus himself, as we hear your word spoken to us, Father, help us to trust it, to commit ourselves to it, and to obey it. May that be true of us as we go through this time, as we hear this. May your Spirit convict our hearts of ways that we are not trusting and obeying what your Word says. But help us always to remember that you have graciously given us your Spirit to help us. So may he stir in our hearts this morning and set our eyes on Jesus and set our feet to walk towards him. We ask all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Anybody in here a fan of romantic dramas? Go ahead, show me your hands. Who likes them, right? There's all those Hallmark Channel people, right? or better known, right, by some of us to be called chick flicks, right? If you've seen even just one of these movies, you've basically got the entire plot of all of them, haven't you? The details may change, but the conflict is often the same. You have a main character who often has two options, right? It may be two different people that they're contemplating which one would be the best one to have a relationship with. It may be a choice between a job that they love and a relationship that now has arised in their life. It could be a fear of relationships. And am I going to take a chance one last time on this person who stands in front of me? Regardless of the details, the plot is the same. Love stirring someone to make certain choices. As the, one, the main character grows in love towards a specific person, they then have to decide whether their love is going to stir them to change, right? To make certain choices in life. And we all do this, don't we? Apart from watching chick flicks, if you love the Hoosiers, which you might not after this week, but if you love Indiana basketball you change, you reorient your schedule in order to watch them, 
right? You make changes based on what you love. If you love your family, you make choices that protect the time that you have with your family. You make choices of what's best for your family. If you love your job, you probably tend to arrive many days with a better attitude than you would at a job that you don't love. Love changes our priorities. But what about when it comes to Jesus? Would you claim sitting here this morning that you love Jesus? If so, what changes have happened to demonstrate that to be true of you? This morning we see Jesus instructing his disciples multiple times If they love him, they will conform their lives. They will change their lives. They will reorient their lives based on what it is he has taught them on how they're supposed to live. And my hope is that Jesus' own words will kindle within us a desire to not only love Jesus more, but to conform our lives to what he says. So let's go ahead and look at our passage for this morning. It's in John chapter 14, starting in verse 15. John 14, starting in verse 15. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever. Even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees him nor knows him, you know him. For he dwells with you and will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Yet a little while and the world will see me no more, but you will see me. Because I live, you also will live. In that day you will know that I am in my Father and you in me and I in you. Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. Judas, not Iscariot, said to him, Lord, how is it that you will manifest yourself to us and not to the world? Jesus answered him, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. Whoever does not love me does not keep my words, and the word that you hear is not mine, but the Father's who sent me. These things I have spoken to you while I am still with you, but the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. Now, I think, I hope you already see the repetition Jesus says in this passage. And it's the first point. The union of love and confirmation. Not confirm, conform, right? Not confirm, conform, conformation. Over and over again, Jesus connects the dots between his disciples' love for him and his disciples keeping his word. Following his commands. These two things must be united together or else, or else his disciples' claims of devotion, of love, will be proven to be false. Just look at how many times. Verse 15. 
If you love me, you will keep my commandments. Verse 21, whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. Verse 23, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word. Verse 24, the opposite side of it. Whoever does not love me does not keep my words. Four times in just that little short passage is this repeated. So this is the point. You can't come away from this passage without catching on to Jesus' call here. To love him and to conform your life to him. So let's look at these two things. First, what does it mean to love Jesus? Now, a lot of us want to shy away from the world's definition of love, right? And rightly so, to some extent, right? Because the world's idea of love is this giddy feeling you have that can just come and go as it pleases. But what often happens is we as Christians and other people in the world swing the pendulum so far to the other side that we want to avoid the feeling aspect, the affections aspect, and say love is a choice, Love is shown by just what you do. If you love somebody, you do these things, right? That's what love really is, is what it does. But I think it's a both and. I don't think it's just, okay, what externally happens, but I think it also, what you externally do is driven by what's inside of you, your affections towards someone. In fact, let me give you an example of this, though it's not a towards Jesus example. It's the opposite direction. John chapter 8 starting in verse 42. Jesus said to them, If God were your father, you would love me, for I came from God and I am here. I came not of my own accord, but he sent me. Why do you not understand what I say? It is because you cannot bear to hear my word. You are of your father, the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. You catch these words showing up here. You don't love God because your will, something inside of us, is to do what? Your father, the devil's, desires something inside. Right? So it's an internal reality that then drives what we do externally. And so I think it's a both end. When we hear the word love, it's not just a, well, it's only what I do or it's only what I feel. It's a both and. So when we come back to verse 15 in chapter 14, we have to keep in mind that when Jesus says, for those who love me, he's meaning those who desire him, those who prefer Jesus, those who want him. But then on the other side, what does Jesus say? What's true of those who have these affections for him is the external part. They keep his commands, or I call it here conformation. Now, I understand, right? As soon as we start talking about conforming to something, we start to put up all these walls, right? Of it's, the world tells us it's not good to conform, right? Be your own person. Or maybe in, even in a Christian way, you're thinking of Romans 12, right? Do not be conformed to this world, But when our conformation is we're becoming like Jesus, we now have a biblical truth. That is exactly what Paul tells us in Romans 8. Our goal is supposed to be that we are being made into the image of Jesus. Now, again, when we hear Jesus say, keep my commands, we tend to think only externally, don't we? 
What am I doing on the outside? What actions am I performing that Jesus told me to fulfill? But, just to give you a reminder, where we started in chapter 14, what is his first command in chapter 14? Actually, three commands. Don't let your hearts be troubled, internal. Believe in God. Believe also in me. Those are all internal commands. He's saying something that happens in our souls, in our hearts that we're supposed to do. That doesn't mean that we don't follow the external commands, but he's saying, my whole point here is, there's an internal and external working together. Our hearts must have affections for Jesus. Our hearts must love Jesus, and they must keep his commands. The commands to trust him, and the commands to externally obey all that he has told us to do. And it's not just an arbitrary list of commands. It's not like Jesus just comes and says, here, we came up with these set of rules, you follow them, and that's what I've told you to do. Instead, look at what he just told us last week in verse 12. Whoever believes in me will do what? Will also do the works that I do. So now it's not just some random list of commands. This is Jesus saying, if you love me, you will start to look like me you will start to trust the Father like I do. And you will start to obey and have your life look very similar to mine. Those who love Jesus, prefer Jesus, find that their lives get reoriented so that they live like Jesus. They want to display Jesus in their hearts and in their actions. In fact, if someone came up to you and said, I'm a diehard, I love the Hoosiers, and you looked at them and said, what do you think of the game Tuesday against Wyoming? And they said, I have no idea what you're talking about. How many of you would believe their love? You wouldn't. This is the NCAA tournament after all, right? And you're not even watching the game. How much do you really love them? Those who love Jesus have affections for him, but then they see those desires to be like him cause them to actually live differently. And I think this union of these two things helps us in two ways. This union of conforming our lives and this union of affections or love for Jesus. First, it reminds us that the Christian life is one of ongoing growth. We grow in our love and our affections for Jesus, which means our lives start to then progressively become more like him. Just because, I know this could be controversial, just because you walked down an aisle and prayed a prayer however many years ago doesn't mean you love Jesus now. If you loved him back then, you would have grown in your love for him until now and had your life become more like him in this process. If you think your one-time decision to walk down the aisle or pray your prayer in the pew is the end of your commitment, you better come back and read this passage again. And the other way this union helps us of love and confirmation is it keeps us from moralism thinking as long as our words and our actions are morally right, 
then we must be pleasing Jesus. But Jesus cares whether those moral actions are driven by a love for him. He cares whether we're doing it with the right motives, with the right reasons, with the right heart behind all of it. You can freshen up on the outside as much as you want, but still not really love Jesus. If that's what you're trying to do, it's like going to a cemetery and trying to clean up the outside of the tomb and then saying, look, they're alive. There's a reason why Jesus calls the Pharisees whitewashed tombs. They clean up the outside, but they have no affections for God. So it must be both. Love for Jesus and hearts and lives that begin to actually look like Jesus. Does this sound like too much? As you look in your life and you look at the sin that exists in your own life, does this sound like, I don't know if I can do that? reality is this. We need help. Our sin renders us unable to actually live this out on our own. Left to ourselves, we will only have affections for worldly things. We'll have our emotions go crazy, we'll neglect the truths of Scripture, or we'll flip it and we'll think as long as we externally live the truths of Scripture, we can ignore affections. So what are we left to do? If you're discouraged, as you hear these words of what you're supposed to look like and realize you can't do it, there's an encouragement for you in the following verses. Look at verse 16. I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper. Help will be given. In fact, help had already been given. Did you catch that word, another? That means a second one like the first one. Who's the first one? Jesus himself. Jesus himself is the first helper, but remember, he's been telling his disciples, I'm about to leave. I'm about to go away, but I will ask the Father, and he will send you another helper. And who is this helper? None other than the Holy Spirit himself. And look at what encouragement he gives. Jesus is about to leave, but what's true of this one in verse 16? This coming helper, to be with you forever. This helper, once you receive him, is never going to leave you. He's never going to depart from you. He will always be with you in a way that Jesus was not able to be, right? Jesus physically has to leave. He has to go to the cross, and then he's resurrected. Then he ascends into heaven. He's not going to always be with them physically. But the Holy Spirit, as he sends to help them, will be. I hope this is an encouragement to you. If you believe in Jesus, if you love him, if you trust him, if you follow him, you have a helper who is always with you. But he doesn't belong to everybody. Right? Look at verse 17. The spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him. So what are we told? The world can't receive him. This helper, this Holy Spirit, is only given to those who have faith in Jesus. He's talking to his disciples, after all, those who do believe in him. In fact, Paul tells us in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 13, when you believed the gospel, you were sealed with the Holy Spirit. 
So you receive him when you believe, and the encouragement, the comfort is knowing he will always be with you. Now the question arises of how does the Spirit help us? What is it that he does that helps us? We see two specific things, I think, in this passage. First, the Spirit changes us. Remember what we said, right? Left to ourselves, our affections will only go after worldly things. We need the internal part of us to be changed, transformed. And look at what happens in verse 17. He tells his disciples, you know him, for he dwells with you. This is present tense, right? He currently dwells near them, with them. He's around them. Particularly, he's in Jesus, right? We know Jesus receives the Holy Spirit, Right? The whole image of the baptism, that's what happens. So Jesus has the Spirit. So the Spirit's near the disciples, but what's the promise? He dwells with you now, but what will be true? He will be in you. It's not just that you're going to be near Him anymore, but He actually is going to come in you. And there's a change that happens when He does. In fact, if you would remember... John chapter 3, when Jesus is talking to Nicodemus. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. You catch it? The whole thing we call what? Being a born-again Christian happens by the Spirit. When the Spirit comes in you, He changes you. You're born again. That's a pretty massive change, is it not? But it's not just so that we will live however we feel then, right? That's the temptation. Well, I have the Spirit in me, so whatever I feel must be right. But look at what's true of Him in verse 17 again. What's He called? The Spirit of truth. So now we find that the Holy Spirit, first way, he helps us, he changes us. Second way, he guides us in truth. In fact, look at how Jesus describes him later, right? Verse 26. The Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. When the Spirit comes to the disciples, he gives them understanding to what Jesus has said. Right? Remember, John has already told us some of this. This finally made sense after the glorification of Jesus. He told us that multiple times already. The disciples realized this after he had been resurrected. Who brought that understanding for them? The Spirit. But then also... Not only will the Spirit give them understanding, but he will help them remember things that they couldn't remember otherwise that Jesus has said. So this, the Spirit not just changes us inside, but he teaches us the truth, the direction in which we're supposed to head. So both aspects of the union that we saw before Right, the union of love and conforming our lives to Jesus, are accomplished as we submit ourselves to the Spirit who is in us when we believe. So ask yourself, what role is the Spirit playing in your life? 
Do you find yourself growing in your love for Jesus? That your love for worldly things is lessened? Are you spending more time listening to Jesus' own words so that the Spirit can give you understanding, so that the Spirit can call it to mind when maybe you're not sitting right in front of them? The Spirit helps us understand, and He calls things to mind when we need them. If these things are not your reality, you must begin to question, where is my love for Jesus? Where is my conforming to Him happening at? Because it's all by the help of the Spirit. All of it begins, though, when we trust in Jesus. Because that's where we see Jesus go next. To Himself. He's going to send the Spirit. The Spirit will be in you. But what's he say now in verse 18? I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Wait, what? Didn't Jesus just say he was going away? And they can't come with him? And now all of a sudden he's saying, I'm going to send the Spirit to help you. Oh, yeah, and guess what? I'm going to come. Jesus, you just said you're leaving. We can't come with you, and somehow now you're going to come. And so we start to have all these questions of what's Jesus talking about here. It should be an encouragement, at least, right, to know Jesus is coming. But verse 19, what's he say? Yet a little while, and the world will see me no more, but you will see me. Because I live, you also will live. Now there's debate as to what Jesus means here. There's debate. Is Jesus talking about his resurrection? Because when Jesus is resurrected, the world doesn't see him, right? He appears to his disciples in smaller crowds. But because he lives, they also will live, right? So there's a sense where it easily could refer to that. And it may. But I think as we continue on, as we continue on in the New Testament particularly, we see there's also ways in which we see Jesus even after he ascends into heaven. Just look at 2 Corinthians chapter 4 and look at what our salvation experience is described at. Just two verses. Verse 4, talking about unbelievers. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ who is the image of God. So we're blinded to that before Jesus. But now, verse 6, For God, who said, Let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. I once was blind, but now I see. But you're not physically seeing Jesus. What do you see? You see the glory of Jesus. Your heart is opened up to see. So is that what Jesus is referring to back here in chapter 14? It may or may not be, but I think he's at least headed in the direction of what's going to be true after he's not physically here. Because look at verse 20. In that day, same day it sounds like, you will know that I am in my Father and you in me and I in you. That doesn't seem to be the resurrection. 
doesn't seem like the disciples at the resurrection are understanding Jesus to be in them. It's that he's near them again. So now we're talking possibly, or I think right after the resurrection, when they receive the Spirit by the Holy Spirit, what else do we receive? Jesus. Jesus is in us. Not just the Spirit in us, Jesus is in us. If you are a believer, you can wholeheartedly say, Jesus is in me. No doubts about it. By the Holy Spirit who's been given to you. How comforting is that? As I seek my entire life to love Jesus and to have my life look like Jesus, Jesus is in me the whole time I'm trying to do it. He is in you as you follow him. But let's not neglect the final member of the Trinity that shows up in verse 20. And that day you will know what? That I, Jesus, am in my Father. So we have the Father now start to show up. But think about this logic for a moment of the three things Jesus states. Jesus is in the Father... The disciples are in Jesus, and Jesus is in the disciples. If they are in each other, and Jesus is also in the Father, what's that make true about the disciples? That to some extent, they are back in relationship with the Father. And in fact, Jesus starts to expand on what this relationship with the Father is going to look like. As he continues on, see verse 21. Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. Those who love Jesus find their lives conforming to Jesus, find what to be true of themselves. That they are loved by Jesus and by the Father himself. Now don't jump too quickly to the idea of my obedience earns the Father's love. That's not what he's saying here. At the very moment of belief, right? At the very moment that we become in Jesus, the Father begins to pour out love on us. It's not based on self-effort, but it's based on what? Grace that is greater than our sin. There was no obligation for God to send his son. There was no obligation for the spirit to be sent to change any of us, to bring any of us into a loving relationship with God. But he still did it anyway. That's grace. We should be overwhelmed with thankfulness, with gratefulness, as we really consider how God saved us and changes us, all so that he can make us loved by him. But it doesn't stop there. Look at what else Jesus says. The Father will love us, we will be loved by his Father, and he will love us, and what? I will manifest myself to him. It's no longer that they are going to see him after his resurrection. 
Right now we're already past that. We're at where Jesus is in us. So what's Jesus really talking about here? How is it after Jesus ascends into heaven that he's going to manifest himself to us, right? By the Spirit, we know Jesus is in us, but, well, Judas has the same question we do. Verse 22. Judas, not Iscariot, said to him, Lord, how is it that you will manifest yourself to us and not to the world, right? So those who believe in you, those who follow you, those who trust in you, how is it that we are going to somehow have you manifested to us in a way that the world does not. How's that going to happen? It's clearly not talking about the resurrection here. So what is this? And Jesus explains the reality in verse 23. If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. Jesus, we already found out, right? Spirit in us. Jesus in us. But Jesus changes his language here, doesn't he? What's Jesus been saying this whole time? I, I will do this. I will come. I will ask. I will send. Now what? We. We will come to him and make our home with him. Who's Jesus talking about? Who's the other person in the verse? My Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. The Father himself, the one Jesus has been referring to in all these chapters in the Gospel of John as the one who sent him, the one he's going back to, almost making it seem like he's often in the distance somewhere, now we find that the Father will not just come to believers, but that He and Jesus will make their home with us. This word home is extremely unusual to Jesus' vocabulary. In fact, it's unusual in the entire Bible's vocabulary. It's used twice in the entire New Testament, both in chapter 14. Where was it used before? Verse 2. In my Father's house are many rooms, homes. So while Jesus started all of this, of I'm going to a place to prepare a home for you, prepare a room for you, what's now the comfort that he gives? As you walk through this world and seek to live in a way, to love me and live in my commands to conform your life to me, guess what? Not just the Spirit, not just Jesus the Son, but the Father and the Son and the Spirit will come and be at home in you. This is the comfort he gives on his final night to his disciples. That as we pursue him, as we love him, as we have our lives look like him, we find that all three members of the Trinity are at home in us. While you're waiting for your future home, he comes to you and makes his home. Think of that. Now, a lot of us have weird ideas, right? We go to somebody's house and they say what? Make yourself at home. But we don't do it, do we? We surely don't reveal everything we do in our own house when we're at somebody else's. We still never can fully do that ourselves. We can't totally unveil ourselves in this other person's home. But that's not true with the Trinity. 
For those who trust Jesus, those who love him, those who want to be conformed to him, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit are at home in you. Fully. Does that give you any comfort? That someone who's born again, someone who has affections for Jesus, a desire to have your whole life reoriented towards Jesus, God himself, comes into you to change you. To make you born again. To teach you the truth. To guide you in a direction to change you into the image that He has called you to be. So my friends, to hear Jesus, to love Jesus, to conform to Jesus is to hear God. To love God. To conform ourselves to God. Notice the very last verse. Verse 24, whoever does not love me does not keep my words, and the word that you hear is not mine, but the Father's who sent me. If you hear Jesus' words this morning, you hear his call for you to love and keep his word. Realize it's not just Jesus' words, but words from the Father, words that belong to God himself. It's hard, isn't it? It's hard to live in this world with all these other loves and all these other affections and try to love Jesus. Try to have our lives conformed to the image of Jesus. Let me remind you of a couple things. God doesn't love some future version of you. You don't have to get reach a certain point in your love and obedience before God says, okay, now I'm finally going to let you be loved by me. God doesn't love some future version the moment you believe he begins to pour out his love, but God also loves you enough to not let you stay there. So if you think that the Christian life is one where as long as I did this so many years ago, God's fine with it. He's not. I promise you, he's not. Straight from the words of Scripture himself, from Jesus himself. If you love me, you will begin to look like me. So let me just urge you this morning to hear Jesus, to love Jesus, and to conform to Jesus. Because to do so is also to hear God himself, to love God himself, and to conform yourself to God himself. Let's pray together. Father, we need help. We can't do this. On our own efforts, our own affections, we will always chase after earthly things that are just passing away. Help us by your Spirit, by Jesus, and by you yourself as the Father coming inside of us and making your home in us changing who we are in our affections and teaching us the truth of how we're supposed to live. May our lives every day grow in love for Jesus and in becoming like him. Help us, Father. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.
And as they come up, we're going to sing as the deer. And I hope that what this passage was a reminder of this morning is a love for 